0: Hi, my name's Sophie Scott, and let me introduce you to my esteemed colleague. <laughs> she's,
1: not t- she's not telling you who I am.
0: I want you to to, say who you are.
1: Oh, right. I'm giving you agency. Okay, agency (laughs) is mine. I'm Will Eves and I'm a novelist and poet.
0: And we are the Neuromantics. You are listening to the Neuromantics. I am a neuroscientist and I give Will a paper to read and Will gives me some uh, work of literature to read. I think I win in this. And then we try and communicate. That's what we're going to try and do.
1: This time round, which is the sixth episode of our second season, so, we're you know, we're speeding towards our 20th episode anniversary. This time around, we've got paper about design problem-solving and the use of metaphors in that for young architects. And a lovely essay by a cartoonist and a rock musician called Peter Blegvat. And I'm going to ask Sophie to introduce the paper first.
0: So the paper um, comes from a tradition in... sort of psychological sciences of a field of a kind of applied psychology which I have actually worked in when I first was a postdoc this was the field I worked in and what they're trying to do in this is to what's the best way of explaining it try and apply psychological processes in a way that would help you understand and maybe even be able to sort of document and reflect back on natural human behaviors here processes of design and here questions around creativity and how you can sort of uh, influence or improve or help people going through the creative process um, about 20 million years ago I was involved in a something quite like this where we were trying to find ways of um, helping people who were learning how to code I think that was it which involved me for some reason trapping to Denmark every week and giving a lecture to very bemused (laughs) Danish computer scientists. But the idea here is that of, of metaphor. And if you kind of address a question of design and hear the question of design is architecture, if you can sort of pull out a route for thinking about metaphors, which are frequently found throughout the design world, and actually sort of make that more explicit to people, does that help them in their design? And the, the participants are architects, sorry, students of architecture who are given a, a problem to solve of redesigning a, a Randan area in Tel Aviv. Um, and that that's
1: the basic framework for it. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I uh, I thought it was a really good paper. Throughout it, it flags up, you know, some pretty uh, <laughs> obvious problems as soon as you start talking about things like metaphor and creativity, um, which is, what do we mean by these terms? On a kind of concrete and practical level, I think what they're getting at is they want to see whether thinking metaphorically, um, pulling in ideas from other disciplines and other parts of one's life in order to understand the design process, they want to understand whether it has an effect upon a particular project, a measurable effect upon the way something or a set of people innovate in their design of a block of flats or a sort of low-rise complex for this run-down bus station in Tel Aviv, or whether it's really only a valu- valuable after something has been designed and done as a means of describing what's happened. So is it a tool or is it a description? Mm-hmm. And coming from a sort of literary standpoint, you know, you think of metaphors as just simply as it's... Um, describing one thing in terms of another. And the etymology of the word, it means that it's for from the Greek, you're carrying. So you're carrying meaning from one concept to another. Stop me if I'm wrong, but I think the authors of this paper, um, or the author Hernan Pablo Kasakin, says that surprisingly and slightly counterintuitively, metaphors are more useful at the practical stage than they are at the descriptive stage. So if you have a metaphor like um, form follows function you know from the modernist movement or or, or less is more. I'm not sure if those really are metaphors, by the way. I think they're more like mantras, you know, sort Mm. of principles. But if you have that, that's more useful when you're actually working on something than it is as a sort of of general description of process. what, What I don't get from the piece, and I wondered if you could sort of open this out a bit, is how it was useful practically.
0: I agree with you totally. And first of all, I think this really critical difference between saying that metaphor is a, almost like a cognitive structure that you're engaging to do this creative task, which is almost how it's used in the introduction. They, they speak of metaphors as thing; the mind is made up of metaphors. Whereas retrospectively, when a thing exists, it is very easy to or you know, relatively easy to sort of draw ideas about metaphorical influences that you can read into it. It's like um, in the psychology of humour, there's a lot of analyses of jokes and what makes a joke funny. And it's always of an existing joke, and no one's ever found a way of taking those theories about what made that joke funny and turning it into a way of making new jokes. The thing that we experience as thought is what's doing the work. And it's not always, actually. There can be a, a great deal of cognitive stuff going on or brain processes going on, we don't really have any access to. And it's almost like what we experience in consciousness, well, one theory of consciousness is what we're experiencing is a description of that lot. Yeah, It's kind of telling you. And that's not, um, that's not unhelpful, and there are very many useful things to be able to do with that, but that's not... Just because it feels like that's what's important does not necessarily mean that that's what's guiding you. Now, there are limits to this, and you talk very beautifully about when you're writing the kind of the shape... Of the thing that you're writing, how that sort of takes form and helps you think about what you're writing, but there, I don't think you're claiming that that's, that that almost feels like something that's arising from you when you're thinking about your writing, rather than I've got the shape. Now let's crack on with the writing.
1: Yes, it's not it it's not a kind of modular process. I think if you're trying to write a story, you don't you don't you know have a thought or a shape and then you know wrestle it into some shape, some further shape. It's it's the processes are quite coeval. I mean I I prefer to think of it and here's a metaphor as something that coalesces and really what's behind this this problem of w- when does a metaphor become a metaphor or when does language or a mental image become language or a mental image is i think to do with and and the, the authors of the paper fight shy at this but it is the old thorny problem of you know what is perception because there's an argument to be made that since we necessarily receive all our information about the world through our perceptual processes, whatever they may be, that process is one of metaphorization. We're not getting the world as it is, the colorless world of particles and forces. We're getting it through the tint and hue of the human experience. And that is, as it were, the overarching. Mm. Um, the carry case metaphor for everything else. And you can think of that mechanism as um, a machine for producing metaphor so that our experience of the world is a metaphor for the world. And I think that's what—that's the problem that's slightly behind this business of when does when does language become language, when does an image become an image? But of course you can't. The truth is you just can't go on talking at that level all the time. In every single paper you write about psychology, you go nuts. So... So that's why I thought that even though that's there in the background, it would have been quite helpful and, and it's an interesting paper anyway, but it would have been even more helpful if they'd had a few more examples mm. of the sort of things they were working with um, when they said, they, they particularly, they, they notice they go quite hard in on one particular student who comes up with a combination of flats in a sort of three-part structure with a sort of zigzag shape and there are shops down below and there are flats on top um but they don't say exactly what it was that got him there apart from the fact that he called it a bazaar, the bazaar of the world which i thought was lovely yeah but i sort of i i wanted kind of a bit more from him
0: I mean, it's another tension in psychology. Do you go in and run an experimental study, which is what they've done here? They've got different groups. So they, they do different things and they see what the outcome is. Or do you say, for the if, whatever are the limitations of people's own awareness, let's go in and ask them anyway. Yeah. Let's find out from their words what they say and see if themes emerge. And it's, you know, it's a technique, a, a qualitative analysis that has its roots in sort of psychology, taking ideas from, you know, the humanities and the literature and sort of, you know, treating what someone says about what they've done as a text that you can then pull things from. And you do kind of want that. I want to know if he or she has a metaphor in mind, even if that's still secondary to the cognitive processes, what was its role even as something that was emerging during the process. Was there anything like that in there?
1: Do you think there's a kind of resistance to that sort of approach uh, in in the field because it doesn't look sufficiently data-driven?
0: It it comes and goes. So when I was doing my PhD in the early 90s, um, I was tooling around and learning how to programme and everyone... Uh, who'd learned about postmodernism and psychology it was sort of starting their, se- their seminars by talking about Foucault and I was feeling very out of it you know um, yes. so it's it, it well, but actually I mean I have more and more been using it in my work so I had a student last year who was very interested in exploring uh,
1: experiences of
0: joy and I, said, I think,
1: Well, I think we can all get on board with that, can't we? Exactly.
0: We're, we're very much <laughs> driven by the joyless scenario in which we all found ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> and what she did was a, she did a sort of straight-down-the-line psychometric approach to developing a questionnaire, and she did structured interviews with people and then did a qualitative analysis to pull out themes and ideas and really then just compared the two. Do, do you see any similarity between this thing that is... Um, this tool we've constructed to ask questions in a scientific way. And then these narratives that emerge from people talking about where they find joy in life. Did you find? And she did find some overlap. And that to me feels like you're kind of getting the best of both worlds. You've developed your nice, shiny scientific tool and you've also got this messy, real human data, but you can approach it in a systematic way. This science is the thing you do. It's not what you do it on and you can approach that data scientifically. It's, it just becomes a different kind of observational study. So I I, th- I think it's, you know, and I'm not by no means alone in this, it's a very, very important way, really, particularly if you're in a territory where, you know, we're not talking about working memory or how we learn words. You actually, which you can probably boil down to, certainly most of the time, something much more constrained in terms of perceptual and cognitive processes and something that is going to be very different across people and driven by different sorts of experiences and different goals it does really help i think to have those data
1: they discover in the course of this paper that metaphors are useful in terms of innovation and utility they're not so useful uh in terms of fluency and aesthetics and these other factors that i that i don't think are terribly well defined in the paper but they they're very useful in in, in the practical way i mean i i buy that but uh I think he sort of misses out the obvious context of a design studio and students being given a design job, which is that students asked to do a task which will be more or less successful and find more or less favour with the person asking them to do it are heavily constrained by that. In other words, they want to do something that's good. Yeah. You know, so a really important part of this project is the metaphor of success and good, good, better, best that's, that's behind it all. Because you are, and, that, and that's always the case with design projects, you know, you want the client, or in this case, the, the teacher, mm. to approve what you've done. Now, what sort, of, what sort of impact does that have on one's actual ability to innovate or to do something really new? Because of course, as someone once said to me in publishing, you know, there are two rules. One is that you want something new. You want something that's not been done before. And the other is that you want something that's been done before because you know it works. Oh, <laughs> <Well>, yes. <laughs> and, and, I'm sure, and that's the case here. But it doesn't, yeah. so it doesn't come into the spec. And it seems to me to be quite an important one if we're thinking about pure design
0: and I guess that's why because we come back to this it's the the applied psychology perspective that's coming to this that's what you you set yourself again you set different goals but you're setting your goals to try and sort of understand a thing that's going on in the world with a very applied end so I think I mean I guess if there weren't if you had design without these constraints would that just be art I don't
1: yeah, well, I liked that. that that's some quite. There's a bit of. There's a fantastic couple of paragraphs about creative thinking and design, where they get a bit. They get a bit baffled by the notion of art. An outstanding <laughs> piece of art, they're saying. I, I sort of little bit of. I put a weedy question mark next to that, going <laughs> top art. What yeah, top art? <laughs> they did. They did great yeah, art they, there. <laughs> they do great art. What does that mean? Turn um, out of I also like their factors of creativity, which I felt I failed on all four. Elaboration, innovation, fluency and flexibility. I sort of feel I just don't have any of those. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, in, I'm far too dense to be elaborate. You know, I like formal forms that died about 450 years ago. Um, I'm completely erratic and there's no fluency at all. It's like a dried up riverbed. And I'm about as flexible as a sort of arthritic so-and-so. So, I mean, I, I you know, I'm I'm out for the count. Recently, what, rewatched uh
0: The Silence of the Lambs and that bit where she goes to interview Hannibal Lecter and he goes, you try and dissect me with your blunt little tools? And <laughs> <laughs> slams the questionnaires <laughs> yeah. back exactly. at me? But there's always a problem in psychology. You have to start operationalizing your terms yeah. and as soon as you do that you will both be placing what you think or the thing the way that that should be done on the problem and you'll start missing stuff yeah because those blunt little tools are always got and you will always always foul up somewhere along the line they, at the, the broadest sense they may well be very
1: successful but as soon as it gets granular or individual it gets very difficult there is, but there is also an external influence there, actually, from from the world at large, which I think is the influence of, you know, the lingua franca of, of, of well, marketing, really. The lingua franca of, you know, what what we can use as sort of common terms that everyone will understand that you know mm. can sort of promote an idea very quickly in this, in this, in the fast turnover of the, of the common world. And it makes me think of those. Mar- <laughs> There's a fantastic episode of the sort of bittersweet comedy drama Succession. Oh. Have you ever seen Succession? It's very, very, very good. And it's really based upon the trials and tribulations of the Murdoch family, only, you know, metaphorized into um, the Roy family. And there are these endless board meetings at which people use these operational terms, which begin to spawn other terms that mean the absolute reverse. There's one where they're talking about saving the company, and they're talking about those sort of bits of, you know, the media mix that are lifeboats, in other words... Things that are profitable and will keep the company afloat. But as soon as you start mentioning lifeboats, of course, you invoke <laughs> <laughs> titanics and icebergs. <laughs> you can see escape. <laughs> um, suddenly we're talking about icebergs. What's going on? It's very, very good. But that I think is a, that's one of the problems with this, with this business of operational terms. They, because they're necessarily a bit vague, um, they, yes, they tend to spawn their opposites. And of course, mm. that's what happens with metaphors as well.
0: The only other thing I wondered was the, the kind of strong claim they were making for metaphor as a... A kind of cognitive st- structure like a filter almost the sort of you're kind of engaging a ment- metaphor to deal with the world or if it's just a almost a thing we can't help but do like we want to name things and we want to categorize things and we want to find similarities between things and we want to tell stories about those things A metaphor seems to be part of that kind of a way of Imposing meaning on, as you say, this random world we're in—it's, you know, the, 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 it's a—it's a process rather than a some sort of representational guide.
1: Well, it certainly comes down to the questions of what language is, you know, because I, it, I always there are many, many uh, definitions and many philosophical approaches to the problem of, of languages and signs, and some are more popular than others at any one moment in, you know, in philosophical history. But the one that I've always really liked and I've always thought is just sort of intuitively makes sense and it's just striking is John Locke's definition of a word as the sign of an idea. Uh, And that's something that I I, I, it seems to me it's a complete um, and but not closed proposition and suggestive and true yeah yeah because it doesn't tell you then how it is that you recognize an idea as an idea. it leaves that open you know what is the what's the kind of language behind language that allows you to see an idea or an image as an idea or an image that's that's all still open for debate, but it's just the idea that a word a a word is both a thing in itself a sign and also it has this sort of it has this it's pointing to something else that's rather less securely formulated or as you say is out there outside the window in the real Mm. world
0: and i like that as well because it's to chop the world up into things which is what we do when we give them when we name things we give a word to a thing is it's still you know like a we don't have a word for every single different dog in the world we call them dogs you know so it's an idea because it's a concept it's not there's not a one-to-one mapping and the edges of that concept will be fuzzy and do bump up against other stuff because because it's an idea. And
1: do people, in, in, in psychology, do people still, you know, go back to, have recourse to D.W. Winnicott stuff about, you know, playing and reality where um, children form, you know, there's a primal relationship with objects and then with word objects and then the separation takes place.
0: That I don't know. I think that Winnicott is extremely important still in sort of child development, but more from the psychoanalytic attachment literature. I don't want to get this wrong because it's entirely... But the child development, cognitive psychology kind of really swept in in the 50s and 60s and a, a lot of child development literature kind of went over more into that side of things. So those ideas will probably be in there, but it will be framed differently because it won't be... Approach to the psychoanalytic way it's being approached in a, you know, kind of a, a cognitive or computational sort of method is what's being applied
1: to examine it. No, well, I think you're that 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 makes sense, and I and I probably um, mistakenly in, in, invoked things that Winnicott's not so interested in, but um, of course he is a marvelous writer. The trouble when I when I read really good psychologists or scientists is that. I, I often do get distracted actually by the style. And it's so pleasing to read something that is about something quite definite and also written with grace yeah. and a degree of fervour that I, I often have to sort of read technical things twice in order to take in the information. So there we are, um, metaphors and uh, design and the inherent properties of both, which I think leads us on to an essay that I did choose because it went along with this problem, I will admit. So it's unsurprising it has correspondences with it. So this lovely essay is by, um, as I mentioned, this cartoonist and rock musician um, and marvellous writer and all-round good guy called Peter Blegvad. Uh, whom some listeners, uh, if you're still with us, (laughs) may (laughs) remember from um, The Independent. On Sunday, uh, for many years, he did the Leviathan cartoon strip, which is the one where the sort of enormous baby sort of encountered the world, and it was rather surreal and very, very funny. Uh, But he's a great great musician, too, and he does lots of records with Andy Partridge, um, formerly of XTC, and this essay that I've given, Sophie, comes from a new book called Imagine, Observe, Remember. And it's about a drawing and thinking project that he's had going for about 40 years now, uh, in which he tries to isolate and run together these three properties um, or ways of thinking about objects and images. So typically he will draw from memory uh, the way a river um, runs through a delta to the sea or he'll draw a radiator from memory or a razor blade or some swimming baths, or a piano, whatever it might be. And then there'll be another image which is an image of straight observation and then there'll be a third one which is um, the image reimagined. So memory, observation, and a reimagined thing, and to see how those, whether those three different processes um, produce different things or whether they're all part of the same thing. Uh, And he acknowledges that it's a kind, there's an artifice involved in this because, of course, they're all part of our perceptual apparatus and imaginative apparatus. So memory and imagination are arguably quite close together, and there's a lot of literature about that but nonetheless it's it's a fascinating piece and um i i think it's very moving too because it's about someone as he says it's about someone to trying to be um objective about their style and it's a really interesting thing to do rather than sitting there saying you know we are all uh, inalienably, you know, subjective and it's all mysterious and we can't say anything about it. He's trying to do what the psychologists are doing, actually, yeah. which is subject himself to an experiment. Yes, it
0: read like a piece of natural history. I, I absolutely loved it. I was really struck at how he had just really pushed out what those three things could mean. So in psychology, you would tend to... Somehow imagine that, oh no, I'm going to say imagine too frequently now, but remembering, (laughs) observing, and imagining at one level should tell you the same thing. And of course then we know it's not. We know that when we remember things, they do distort. They're not, memory again, it's a process. It's not a veridical encoding of what the world is like. And the process of recollecting things, all sorts of other stuff comes to sort of interfere with that. Of course, what got in in the first place cannot necessarily reflect what is out there, so observation is not a uh, straight down the line veridical description of what's out there because your eye is or your ears are processing that information and you're experiencing your brain's guess- best guess at what that means right and and imagining somehow is again feels like well it should be something you kind of you you've put a bit of memory um you'll know, bring it to mind but weirdly if you look at brain areas that are associated with imagery you do see you can see sensory areas like visual areas activated or auditory areas but the strongest activation you get is frequently in brain areas associated with moving your hands and your mouth so it's like imagery is it's not a passive redescription; it's a a creation of the thing.
1: You're, and it's always an embodiment. In exactly. Some
0: way. That's exactly embodiment. It's precisely the word you are somehow re- reforming it, or the way that you recode what it could be is by using the code that you have of how you would do things in the world to make it happen. Yeah. With your mouth, with your hands, with things that you can move to make things occur and be and exist, seems to be really, really important in auditory imagery, but also in visual imagery, and that seemed to weirdly link back in with what you know he was letting imagery mean something different than just a
1: redescription of memory. Yeah uh, He also says, I think, very beautifully, that uh, because in your lovely paraphrase of what's going on there the thing that you're alluding to of course is that in all these processes time is going by they're all sort of temporal so the business of making something is is always active it's always a process of construction in which um you know things are flowing into the present uh, and 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 on as it were into the past um so it's that thing that I think Sartre calls, you know, the ever-growing in totality of the present is what the present really is. It's a sort of, um, it doesn't exist in itself, but it's a sort of point of uh, confluence. Mm.
0: Um,
1: And I think that he is trying to, uh, yeah, he's trying to create at that juncture so that you see um, the different real world objects in their various states potential actualizing um, yet to be but there's always the sense as you say that the real world is is behind it that there is Mm -hmm. something to be if it's if it's imaginary there is still something to be imaged and the question is it's just that you're not quite clear what the object is at the imaginary level Um, but it's it's there somewhere Uh, and one of the interesting things he says is that of course this is harder to do in a way in drawing because a drawing is received very immediately by the person looking at it it's a bit easier to do in writing and in spoken description because the reader is complicit he says with the writer in the imagining process You know, it's taking place as you write and it's taking place as you read. And they both have a sort of passage in time.
0: Mm.
1: Uh, I thought that was really nice and very true. In fact, the exact thing he says, time-based media are better suited to depicting this flux than a single drawing is. Writing has a particular advantage in that it makes the reader complicit in the act of imagining. And then he's got lots of lovely quotes throughout the sort thing. This is one from an Uruguayan author, Felisberto Hernandez, who says, First I sat on the bed and gazed at the little table with the walnut stain. Then I looked around at the number of other things in my room. Suddenly I felt a clear space inside my mind where a sort of airplane was floating. I'll assume my eyes were looking outward as well as inward, and that being round when they moved looking inward, they also moved looking outward, which explains why I was, if only vaguely, aware of the objects in the room. But I was focusing my attention on the airplane floating in the clear space inside me. And I do think that's brilliant.
0: Mm. That is
1: a brilliant um, evocation and quite clinical description of that feeling of retreat we have when we are imagining something. And it isn't true that we're unaware of our surroundings, but they become porous or diaphanous in some way Mm. uh, as we focus upon the mental image.
0: There's so much interest in psychology and, quite correctly, in how we pay attention to the world and the things that affect that. And this kind of inwardly directed attention somehow gets grouped in with something else. You know, we don't model it in the same way. We don't approach it in the same way. But it does seem to be a an entire, you know, an in, everybody's had the experience of getting caught up on something that's not getting on outside um, and I don't think we've quite got I think because we can't do experiments on it you know Mm. we can do experiments where we test stuff that's happening outside of you and what you can and what you can't pay attention to and all the complexities of that and what that means to have that not just paying attention to your internal state but to something that you've created within that What does that mean? And I think that links back absolutely to the problem in the first paper of how do you know what someone's doing when they're creating, when they're trying to solve a design problem? What what is going on there? Let's try it with our tools. But it's that's it's that's you know elements of the same question, isn't it?
1: Yeah. Do you know there's there's an example of that that's just really occurred to me that I that is that brings together all these points of you know design creation and. the object the the un the unspoken difficult object behind the imagined image and that example is the dinosaurs of crystal palace where uh which was sort of made for the um institution of the park and after the, the, the palace came to the park in upper norwood Uh, after the great exhibition 1851 and they end up in crystal palace i think a few years later uh and and around the lake at the bottom of the park um were built and i can't remember that joseph paxton designed the building and was involved in the layout of the park Uh, i can't remember who designed the dinosaurs that were made in an early sort of concrete, I think, mm. and, were, and were laid around the, the lake. They're, but they're absolutely marvellous. They're wonderful bits of design, but the objects upon which they're based sort of didn't exist. Paleontology was a very, very young science at this point, and we really only had a few bones. Mm. We had a few bones and best guesses at the structures of... um megalosaurus uh, or allosaurus or plesiosaurs. And in fact, what's interesting is that as time has gone by, we've found more bones. We've got, in some cases, more or less complete skeletons. Not many, but we've got some. And what's very interesting is that the, the imaginary work that that designer did, treating a single relic bone as a sort of metaphor for an unknown larger structure based mm-hmm. upon knowledge from somewhere else, i.e., knowledge of how um large-scale um herbivores, for example, you know, move uh, based upon the sort of the, the the musculature of I don't know um heavy beasts like rhinoceri or elephants. Those guesses were pretty good. Mm. You know, th- what they came up with using the anatomies of available creatures and carrying them over into those of the dinosaurs, because they might have just got a hip bone. They know it's a big hip bone, so they can make a guess about the size of the creature and the weight and so on. Mm. They weren't bad. They weren't bad guesses. And th- th- The structure's a bit strange in places, and they get one or two scale things wrong, Um They underestimate, for example, the fact that because a plesiosaur is in water, it can be bigger. It's got buoyancy to help it. So the plesiosaurs are too small. Yeah. Um, And the land animals typically, you know, some of them are a bit too big. But they're very, very good guesses at precisely that intersection of the imagined and the remembered.
0: Mm, That sounds amazing. To my shame, I have never seen them. Yeah.
1: It's really, I, it's my favourite park. And I, I, I go, I mean, it's quite near to where I live, so I go there quite a lot. They're lovely. They've been vandalised a bit, sadly. They've been trying to restore them, but someone came along and knocked the teeth out of one of them, which is a great shame because they're beautiful objects. Peter Blackburn, I I will... In the notes to this, um, this episode, I will put a link to uh, his publisher in this book because I really recommend it to you, readers. It's, it's, it's a marvellous piece. It's also, it's very, very tender. And there's a lovely thing at the end about his, he talks about his parents, um, both of whom were artists, and how he feels that he is, you know, rather like a, he's a sort of imagined-remembered, a uh, combination of the two of them. His his mum, who was um, trained by Leger in, in, in Paris and developed her own uh, quite sort of naive style in order to go with the sort of book she wrote. And her father, was who was um, who was a much more of a kind of um, autodidact, in that he was a fantastic kind of uh, memory for forms and the sort of natural ability to reproduce things with the hand. And he feels that he sits at the at the kind of junction between those two styles, the sort of inbred capability and the edited, acquired uh, style. And maybe that's one way, actually, of thinking about metaphor too, that you are using some kind of innate ability to explain the world to yourself. And you are also trying to give it your personal style we all use language individually there's all there's always something in it that is of us Mm. a metaphor is one place one can look for it
0: the only other thing i'm going to find is very very hard to articulate but there was something really powerful about seeing somebody reflecting back over I kept thinking, well, I've got these dates right. Can he really be writing about the 1970s? Because it didn't seem to be, it wasn't like sort of, oh, here is a body of work and I'm describing it. It was more like a kind of an eye on an artistic development which had its roots so clearly back in his childhood. It was a very, very extraordinary piece of writing about a, a life. Um, it was fascinating. It was, it was, what he was writing about was incredible, but also just the, the approach I I would love to see more people do that.
1: I think it comes out of his uh, teenage years and and his his late childhood. I think it comes out of the 60s and this sense that you are, as he says at the end, that he felt that his generation of of, of art students and um, uh, graphic designers and and cartoonists, they they were all psychonauts uh, and that it was their job to... Um, as Allen Ginsberg says, he quotes them too: to widen the area of consciousness, make pragmatic examination of the texture of consciousness, mm-hmm. even somewhat transform consciousness. And uh, you know, I think the sixties get a bad rap in many ways because we just, we, you know, we we lump them in with a particular time in popular culture. Uh, and once you've marked the usual reference points, um, you know, the end of beat culture, the rise of the Beatles, money coming into London, you know, the swinging 60s, uh, the Stones, um, Altamont at the end of it, you know, you, you, you um, that's it, Vietnam. And it's, I suppose this happens to every decade, but it's it's very instructive to be reminded that there was, there's a psychological history. Mm. to the 60s too, which is really important. And it's about and it is about development. Mm. And it's about child development. And it's about people trying to be more than their forebears thought was possible or acceptable. It, it, it is um I think expansive and in the best sense, you know, politically challenging in that way. And he says This business about going back and finding something true, which you alluded to there, this is what Peter says at one point. This whole project has what might be called an Orphic or hermetic aspect, which involves bringing something lost or hidden to light, and which has as its aim personal transformation or anamnesis, the recovery of innate knowledge, knowledge one didn't know one knew. Perhaps acquired before birth, a whole other type of remembering, and I think that's a brilliant uh, encapsulation—not just of his project, but I think of what you're trying to do when you work artistically. You are always trying to find the hidden. So there's always something a bit occult about uh, creativity. Uh, it's 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 about trying to find the thing that isn't um, obvious or acceptable or, or immediately accessible. The question then is, how do you recognise it as the new thing without reference to the past? How, you know, how yeah. is a new... That's, I mean, I always think that's an interest. How is the new recognisable as something new?
0: There's a, a thing we always do in, in science is try and... If you're studying something, you want to try and control for time. And of course, you can't. You can't if you're trying to look, say, at learning. How do you control for time? I can't get you to unlearn it. What do I do? And and of course, life doesn't control for time because it's not avoidable. And um, one of my, you know, it's life isn't a randomized control trial where you then get to start all over again and try being a dentist. So there are, you know, we you can't get around it. We try and get around it in science with greater or lesser success, and you you actually can't. It's just that everything. Everything that happens to you, you are judging and dealing with in the light of every single thing that's happened to you prior to that point that's informed your experience. And you can't not, you can never sort of see with new eyes. Somebody asked me once uh, about what would you want to hear again. And um, this relates to something that you and I are both interested in. What you know, what's your what I can't remember something? Like, what's your favorite accent? Or what would you like, what what voice from history would you like to hear? And I said I'd like to hear what the Beatles sounded like, because they as soon as you've heard the Beatles, then now that's what the Beatles sound like. But there was a brief period when it was completely shocking to have young men speak that way in a public forum with these accents and these working-class attitudes. And, and, and it was new. And then of course, and as soon as you've heard it, then that's not new anymore. And now that's the Beatles. That's how the Beatles talk. And then that becomes a totally different thing. And that's everything. Everything you're encountering. You, you, you then incorporate, and now I know about that. What's the next? What's this new thing? It's a it's a It's a tyranny. Perhaps
1: much. that's why people like you know uh, quite a lot of artists and and uh, Peter is certainly a good example um try to do two or three things I mean, they may be known principally for one thing, but it's very important in the creative process to have something else going on at the same time you know so, uh, so that because you 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 can't as you say you can't really. Be new because things are always being explained in terms of other things, as with the contingent and so on. But you can have, you know, like a kind of like an army kind of attacking a flank or coming at an angle, you can have an angle on your main activity so that it looks new or yeah. unrecognizable in some way. And I guess that's why it's so important to him to write music alongside mm. um, uh, drawing and to draw alongside the music-making, and to write, because these things are a way of, there isn't, a, he's really saying there isn't a single experience, there isn't a single unitary experience in life. There's, everything is refracted by something else, which is one way, really, of describing what metaphor is doing. So there we are, metaphor. Yes and uh, Mr Blegvad and Design Studios. Well, thank you very much, Sophie. Thank you very much, Will. And thank you, listeners. And we will be, be with you again soon for episode seven of the second season. And um, there are plans afoot also for another online gig, which um, we will inform you about as soon as we know what they are ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> another new Romantics uh, soiree. Indeed. A salon. <laughs> A salon. (laughs) But in the meantime, thanks very much for listening. See you you next time.